Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series. My name's Bryony Willop. I'm a London-based finance partner at global business law firm DLA Piper. I have experience in the financial markets sector and have spent time working in-house at a major European bank, as well as in private practice. Welcome to today's podcast, in which I, together with Tom Hambrett, Group General Counsel and Company Secretary at Revolut, will be exploring how Revolut and the wider fintech payment services and e-commerce industries have played an instrumental role in enabling growth post-pandemic, whilst also mitigating against amplifying risk. A very warm welcome to Tom. For the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great if you could give me a brief introduction of your role at Revolut, as well as an outline of the company's focus. Um, and please do share some context uh, for your other roles and responsibilities, uh, if relevant. Thank you. Sure. So uh, thanks very much, Brownie. Great to be here. So we, um, I'm the, as you correctly said, I'm the, the global group um, GC, which means that um, I sit uh, and own the legal function at Revolut, which is a department uh, consisting of close to 70 now um, lawyers and, and, and trainees and paralegals. Um, the function really sits at the heart of what we do at Revolut. It advises both on, on the product side um, to do with the, the services that we provide our customers, uh, you know, north of 15 million customers uh, globally now, um, as well as advising the business and supporting the business on um, non-product services. So the likes of uh, employment disputes, reputation uh, and, and uh, commercial. We've also got uh, a corporate team and a governance team uh, within the function. Uh, we sit uh, in 13 different markets at the moment. Um, and uh, we're also based in different regions. So the, the, the function is truly global in, in its reach, uh, in its support of the different uh, um, services that the business provides. We, uh, on top of that, I also chair the, the group executive committee uh, here in London, in the UK, um, obviously as, as support the board at the group level as its um, registered company secretary, in addition to a very strong company secretary team. Um, and, and also sit on a number of the local boards uh, for our operational uh, entities in the US, Australia, Japan, um, and New Zealand. So thank you very much for that introduction. Um, as you know, we're here today uh, in the run-up to our fifth DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2021, which is being held um, later in October this year. And we're delighted that you're joining us there uh, for our panel, which will look at um, cashless societies uh, and risk in the context of going cashless. So, you know, in preparation for that, we thought it'd be great to um, have this podcast where we could talk through some of the kind of pandemic topics um, and uh, use that as part of the lead up to our technology summit. So thank you again for being here. It's widely acknowledged that uh, the impact of the global pandemic has been the acceleration of technology trends across the board. Could I ask you to give us some sense of how this has been the case, both for the fintech sector as a whole, as well as specifically uh, for Revolut? Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, the first trend that we're seeing really is the, the shift towards on-demand purchasing. Um, it's been accelerated by e-commerce and, and, and obviously the, the, the uh, physical restrictions um, caused by COVID um, meant that buyers, consumers had to turn to, to um, e-commerce to acquire their goods and, and make purchasing decisions. But really, actually, uh, 
I think that was actually an enabler for a greater shift when it comes to sort of trends. And that is that um, why buy anything uh, unless you need it within 24 hours? Um, and you're seeing that a lot. Um, and a lot of um, last mile delivery companies are now springing up. You've got a lot of um, promotions on um, uh, sort of purchase, purchase decisions being made um, uh, at, at more of a, uh, uh, I guess, <laughs> purchasing decisions being made at a uh, not at a whim, but at less less at less time required to make that consideration, and that's that's where, where e-commerce um, and such platforms as um, having the you know what w w you name it and it's there. So it's buy now, pay later concepts with respect to um, having the, the the satisfaction of that purchase acquire, come prior to actually full satisfaction of the payment, or in terms of making a decision through two step clicks or one step clips on social media platforms. So I guess. Overall, on a macro level, what we're what I'd say is the biggest trend uh, last year and definitely growing into this year is the the on-demand purchasing. What that means in 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 time is the the likes of um, companies that can support consumers that have uh, that want to make a decision very quickly. Uh, in terms of other trends, definitely we're seeing the volumes of e-commerce um, and online payments, not just for uh, physical goods. Um, but also for uh, uh, intangible goods connected with sort of uh, gaming and esports and, and and also real sports in terms of subscription services, all all um, being quite strong. Um, obviously, during a period of time when um, restrictions on travel and, and interaction with other households um, meant that th this was the easiest way of uh, communicating and, and engaging and, and sort of having some form of normality in life. Yeah, absolutely. I really recognise all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously been a you know, fundamental change in the way that people live. Um, and I think, you know, the, the effects of that are going to continue for a long time and they're huge. Not just how um, people live, but also how businesses operate. And mm. so what we saw uh, very early on in the um, during the, the initial lockdown with um, COVID-19 was actually um, a spike in the number of businesses that were registering for business accounts with Revolut. And that was driven by um, the ability for business owners, often small to medium enterprises, so businesses that don't have necessarily a full set of ta uh, tax or finance support services within their operations, uh, look turning to turning to for the first time their business banking requirements and looking at how they can actually improve uh, or get a better service or uh, get a better price from their banks. Um, and so, interestingly, people were able to divert attention that would otherwise be solving real business problems to the types of services that the business required. One of which was banking. So, um, you've got you've got on the retail side a push for on-demand purchase and and, 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 and and a speed requirement there and then on the banking side you've got more sophisticated bank user that's looking for actually a, a larger suite of services as part of their banking product. So I mean during the unprecedented circumstances as we've already touched on you know there have been just major impacts um, through, just through the basic way that people do things and businesses do things um, so during the unprecedented circumstances that the world faces, not just from the virus itself, but also some of the secondary impacts that we've seen, such as the economic dislocation um, caused by the pandemic. Corporates have in many ways realized the key role that they play in, um, in being a force for good. 
And so could I just ask you to share with us how Revolut has responded uh, to the social impacts that are being felt as a result of the pandemic? Sure. And, and I think also your uh, recent developments with um, uh, past uh, tech IPOs in the, the past couple of months has shown the importance of ESG when it comes to listing and the importance that investors and institutional investors return to with your business model. So definitely the social element of, of, of that as well as um, what the business's operations are very important on the long term and, in, and, and, and none so less than how they responded to COVID. So for us, what we looked at was uh, we split it into both you know, the two key fundamental stakeholders we've got, which are our employees and our customers and how we can support both. And so the whole shift from remote working, uh, from office working to remote working, how we can support them and make them comfortable is very important. On the customer side, what we did uh, really well was more of a, an education piece around partnerships with the right charities, um, an, ed, uh, an informative program online through social media around dealing with the strains and stress of mental health in connection with um, responding to a lockdown and to, to, to the, the stress and anxiety that it induces upon anyone. Um, we then looked to sort of see how we could actually use the volumes and use the types of um, spending habits that we're seeing to inform um, future partnerships that we'd see would be struggling. And one of which is the most recent successful partnership with Anthony Joshua to do with the gym, local gyms in the UK. Um, and that's really just about ensuring that these businesses that rely on physical presence and footfall to actually still have a, a means of operating and still have the ability to keep the lights on whilst actually operating with those restrictions. So, um, you know, we, we had to, I guess, identify and think creatively with what we, how did we want to inform good spending habits, but also at the same time, how we wanted to stimulate potentially other businesses and, and, our, and, and, and small, you know, freelancers or sole traders that rely on um, customers to, to be physically present. Obviously, gyms is a, is a good example of that. Um, You've got to mirror that though with your tech offering and, and make sure that at, at all times you're um, able to uh, provide a service that doesn't impact upon the vulnerable. And so with, with, with Revolut, I think a good example of that was still having the gambling lock available um, for people to opt into during lockdown whilst really we did see some sports return much quicker than others, but there was definitely a, a shift towards that. And and and, and then also again with um, with trading, and we saw during lockdown in the early months of 2021 the, the increase in the spike of retail interest in stock trading. Um, so all of these things need to be balanced and and, and constantly monitored to make sure that you're actually not um, uh, providing a tool or just a platform for customers to experience greater harm as well. I mean, in terms of that sort of, I guess, protective tools and, you know, responding to the social situation, um, do you have any thoughts on how the wider financial services industry has perhaps responded, um, you know, with things like repayment holidays on loans or, you know, the connectivity between customers and banks and the ability to be flexible um, over, over things like that during unprecedented times like this? Yeah, it's 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 a great question because there's it, there's always as 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 with anything two sides uh, to the equation and and we see it with 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 discussions around how far should a bank go with offering um, a a a a repayment holiday um, on 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 an outstanding loan versus how how much that should stimulate the economy. We're seeing a, um, somewhat of an unprecedented. Um, 
you know, retail, uh, sorry, residential property market boom at the moment here in the UK with the with the removal of the stamp duty, um, at least until next month. And and so what we're what we're going to say see is I think there's a trade-off. You you want people to to not feel as if they're uh, unable to meet their financial obligations, but then also at the same time you want people to go out there and satisfy and stimulate the economy. So uh, for us, we are in a little bit of a better position as we don't offer currently credit in the UK. Um, and and actually, if, if if anything, we've seen an increase in in the number of um, funds that we have safeguard for our customers during the pandemic, as customers were inter interestingly trying to to potentially um, you know store cash in different currencies um, as a result of uh, uh, you know potential future plans for that, that for their funds. But in terms of the 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 the, the wider financial services sector, I I, I think that um, we're seeing some really innovative work being done on, on identifying and flagging and training of um, vulnerable customers. And I think there's a lot of work still to do uh, there. And actually, I think it's a perfect um, intersection of regulatory, um, you know, the, the application of the regulators' expectations around what financial services, how they should conduct and hold themselves out, and actually what, how we can leverage our own AI, and um, particularly machine learning with respect to our customers' patterns, how the customer interacts with us, when do they spend, how do they talk to us? You know, we've got an in-app chat functionality and we can actually see certain patterns that are reoccurring when it comes to the types of um, you know, behavior that indicates that this could be a vulnerable customer and we need to actually escalate this. And, and so there's certainly um, a lot of innovative work going on and I'm, I'm proud to say that we're doing some of that in-house here at Revolut, but I do think that there's a lot more scope to do as well to go on that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, that, that's fascinating. And the interaction between AI and, and pattern recognition um, and consumer protection, it, it, it's a it's, you know, fantastic area to be exploring. Which regulatory developments are in focus for Revolut as the company looks ahead at bringing the products, the services and its innovations to market over the next one to three years? So I think that's a great question, and and for us, it's it's we've got to look at it on a on a on a both a product in a in a region or market um, level. It it does differ, although the great thing about being uh, centred and regulated here in the UK is often actually we're doing uh, we're seeing we're leading the charge when it comes to regulatory developments and implementation of new processes or expectations on regulated entities. So it's actually uh, a, a, it's nice to be at the forefront because that you can then filter it down through other markets where, where applicable. But you know, in terms of what's happening here in the UK over just the next uh, four to six months, we've got obviously EU exit changes to EMIs and um, PSRs. Um, as a result of Brexit, we've got the EU's um, focus on op financial services operational resilience, which is fantastic, and some that, again, is one that we've had um, here in the UK before. And we've also got changes that the FCA is looking to consult on in terms of stronger customer authentication. Further afield, we've got a lot of change, what it looks like on the um, uh, with Basel III and consolidation there. We've got changes um, in with respect to conduct of financial services in Singapore. We've got... Um, exciting new improvements for the uh, developments for the business on an expansion side when it comes to the likes of India and how um, remittance works there. We've also got internal products that we've recently launched that look to leverage or use those new um, regulatory changes. So for instance, a good example was the release of a web app, uh, which is with limited functionality for uh, a wider customer base, um, akin to other services that other um, challenger banks or remittance providers provide today um, outside of the app itself. So uh, 
I guess for us, it's it's on a on a market by market level. We've publicly stated that we are uh, in the process of um, applying for banking status or permission, sorry, in both the UK and US. That brings with it an, a whole remit of other additional regulatory obligations and also developments that we need to be participating in uh, and working through um, with the central banks there in both. Um, those markets. So I guess we're, we're, we're not short of work when it comes to the potential developments that we see that can impact us. But I think what's really important is that it's going to actually drive innovation in terms of how we do our product and how we can make it better for our customer. And so a good example of that is um, the use of strong customer authentication. When it first rolled out was one which we um, was a challenge in terms of how we were going to implement it. But actually, for, from a user's perspective, it was incredibly seamless in the end and how we were able to use the, the fingerprint stored by Apple on the iPhone or, or, the, or other sort of techniques like that. Yeah. At this point, I, I do wish we could go back to fingerprints. <laughs> I prefer <laughs> that to the uh, to the face idea, in particular with the mask. Oh, it's very awkward. But so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you've obviously got an awful lot to be getting on with there um, already in that regulatory uh, space and with regulatory developments, um, you know, exciting and enhancing, though they may be, I'm sure that the compliance um, and kind of legal monitoring burden that comes along with that um, is quite intense. Um, separately on the market side, you know, we've also obviously got developments going on um, in relation to digital assets and that digital assets market space as well, uh, which potentially would have an impact on Revolut's business. And in particular, um, you know, DLA had uh, noted the recent announcements in the UK in relation to the formation of a task force um, to explore the potential for central bank digital currency um, and CBDCs have, have already been implemented and are being explored in a number of other jurisdictions around the world. So I wondered whether Revolut had any particular thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, we really welcome the, the, the announcement by the Bank of England and the establishment of the task force that's going to be co-chaired by um, John Carnicliffe and um, Catherine Braddock. And I think that the, the opportunity to engage with the Bank of England and to actually um, participate in the collaboration or consultation there is going to be um, worthwhile. We're very excited about it because we do see it as a validation of potentially the benefits of decentralization in some respects. And we also do see it as a potential for the expansion of digital markets. And as you said, digital assets, which is something that is very exciting uh, for a payments provider like Revolut. So I think we're, we're, we're um, imbued by it. And also I'd say that it's not, um, it's, it, it's great to see that there's consistency at that level of, of, of governance when, when it comes to other markets. So we're aware of the likes of um, the, the Central Bank in Canada and, and other regulators in, in Singapore and um, uh, Europe also participating in such uh, discussions with their market players. And so it's definitely something which, you know, we, we view it as a positive um, uh, endorsement of, 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 of our uh, way of thinking in terms of uh, how we can better service our customers uh, and, and work together with other market participants, which is, I think, a key element of the, what the CBDC is all about, which is the, the sharing of information and, and the, the, uh, the, the ability to essentially leverage it and use APIs so that everyone can have a self, the same service and same standard of service. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I can completely... Um, understand everything that you've said there you know I think the other thing that we've noticed at DLA or that we've identified is the um, 
the way that CBDC has the potential to create potentially stronger bridges into digital assets, um, you know, for more people, so more potential inclusivity um, into digital, you know, for people who potentially have um, sort of trust issues um, or, you know, maybe a lack of understanding around digital assets. If CBDC is going to be used in retail payments contexts, um, then the strength of that bridging into digital, uh, that could have quite an impact um, from a sort of broader social perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that actually um, it's incredibly clever and, and, and probably um, intentional, or definitely intentional for it to be so collaborative in the early stages. And, and that's going to allow us and, and others to actually ensure that we're not uh, missing a set subsection of the potential customer base or community that has a relevant um, you know, stake in the development of this um, program. And so I do think that uh, by engaging early, we're going to have members of the community able to voice concern and, and, and identify areas where there's the challenge and, and where we'll have to, as you said it perfectly, create a bridge. Um, and ultimately, uh, with the objective of ensuring that there's trust in the products that we provide. My only question would be, for, for to turn turn your question uh, around on you, which would be, I guess, how would, um, what do you see your clients uh, asking you or, or sort of driving, driving towards when it comes to regulatory change over the next couple of years outside of, um, uh, 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 the CBDC? I think in the regulatory space, we've got a lot of activities around sort of how can we help from a legal perspective to implement um, the use of smart contracts in a more integrated, fundamentally legal way um, it, to support the digital assets community. Because at the moment, there is a bit of a segregation between kind of this is a tech based contract and then these are the legal concepts and whilst we've had some guidance in the space from a legal perspective there's not been um, a, a truly integrated approach and so one of the projects that we're uh, running at the moment at DLA is working on how we might be able to assist to create hybrid type contracts so contracts that have um, you know smart contract execution aspects in order to take advantage of all of that technology but that are supported and surrounded by um, documentary legal terms. So what is the optimal hybrid um, uh, yeah, opportunity, I guess, in, in that smart contract space? So that's one. And, and that's kind of, it's about product development in the digital asset space. Um, it's also about legal certainty. And it's also about standards. So, you know, trying to create the right set of, of standards. And there are some institutions um, and some types of contracts in my space, in particular in the sort of finance space, that, that, that probably lend themselves towards that adaptation quite early. Yeah. Um, so institutions like ISDA, um, you know, any type of contract like that where there's a master agreement and then you pull down from that master kind of transactional terms um, lends itself to a sort of a hybrid approach. So the opportunities around that and where that's headed and where we're at with that, those are some of the things that we explore um, with clients at the moment. CBDCs we've already mentioned. Um, I would say another really exciting area is um, digital custody. So custodians, 
there's been a, a gap really in terms of institutional investment into crypto and other digital assets. There's been a significant gap around institutional custodian services that are enabled and can you know, support that, that type of um, institutional investment activity at large scale. Um, so yeah, developments in the custodial space. The thing about, I suppose, custody, institutional custody is that there's an enormous amount of institutional level interactivity required mm. in order to be able to efficiently um, have holdings in custodial accounts and then tra trade and transfer. And if you think about, you know, the, the, the architecture in the traditional markets that supports institutional custodial services and the kind of, yeah, market activities in, that sit behind that, um, it's, it's really, really complex and it's, it's very, very interactive and all of the institutions have to be on the same, well, really, I suppose in Europe, it's like one of two systems, right? Um, and then just those two systems need to talk to each other. Well, you've got a real fragmentation of approach um, for digital assets, which is needing to be narrowed. Um, so we've also been working quite a lot with uh, institutions who want to come together to try um, and align uh, to, in order to be able to offer digital custody services that actually you know, interact with other institutional digital custody services. So Project Pictor um, is something that we've been working on for quite a while. And the developments in that, in that space are also really interesting and really important in terms of supporting maturity of the digital assets market. So thank you, Tom, for your time today. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you very much, Bryony, for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, looking forward to, to, to speaking with you soon. To our listeners, thank you for joining for this instalment of the Tech Law podcast series in preparation for the DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2021 to be held on the 5th of October.